Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Lynch, the co-founder of Huckletree. Andrew, you're welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being on as a guest, man. Um, typical fashion of the show is I start with early influences, getting to know the guests. No different with you. Through my research, I know that you went to BlackRock Secondary School. Um, I'm going to assume that you grew up in Dublin. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but what was life like growing up in Dublin? Any favorite standout memories? Yeah, no, you're you're right uh, that I I went to Blackrock. Uh, I we actually moved from uh, from Limerick uh, when I was five. So both of my parents are from Limerick. Um, so when people say uh, people say where are you from, I say I say Dublin ish. Um, I think the the biggest the biggest influence uh, from that perspective was was obviously being able to head down to Limerick and head down the, down the country um, on the weekends and on the holidays. Uh, so would have spent a huge amount of time. Uh, in and around Limerick, so that's kind of kind of where my heart is, I suppose. Um, even though my accent mightn't uh, mightn't uh, mightn't say that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting. It's interesting having the having the perspective from from being a bit of a job, uh, and obviously um, uh, going to Black Rock, but then also um, you know having your wings clipped and having your ego clipped sometimes, and you go down to go down to Limerick with a with a funny accent. Um, so sure. it's great, great balance, great balance, and I think. Certainly something that, that kept me grounded uh, growing up all the way through the Celtic Tiger years um, uh, and, and into my, into my uh, late teens and early 20s. During your time growing up throughout those years, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up or were you just enjoying life? Yeah, um, I, did, I did have an idea. Um, uh, most of my ideas at that time were probably bad in hindsight, but I, I certainly had ideas, um, notions maybe uh, better describes it, but... I, like if you think about how uh, most people were geared back in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, mid 2000s, property was the place to be. Um, you, you know, if you weren't in property, you were doing something wrong. Um, and I, I went to study, actually went down to Waterford, down to WIT to study quantity surveying uh, on the basis that, of course, uh, property was where I was at. So um, no better place than a, a quantity surveying degree to, to start. Um, remember one of our lecturers at the time said, you know, guys, you're, you'll be set up. Uh, it was 2006 or seven at the time, pre proper crash and said, lads, you know, there'll be loads of jobs for you. It's great. You, you know, properties where it's at, uh, et cetera, et cetera. By 2009, the same guy was trying to explain to us, you know, you've, a, you've an incredibly transferable degree, the skill set that you've built up in quantities of rain, um, you can, you can apply your trade at any sort of sector. Um, you know, with the implication being that it's, it, it's not going to be property. Um, so uh, I, I quickly realized um, that that property was kind of where I was at, but equally it probably wasn't the development side. So I, I kind of ended up focusing a bit more on the investment and finance side, which, which led me to um, first Liverpool and then, uh, and then London to do my, my master's in real estate investment. Mm. And before we jump into that, a question I yeah. want to wrap this section up on is impact and influence. People can usually point to a small handful of people that have had a massive impact on their early years. So think young Andrew, if not preteen. Um, 
close friends, acquaintances, teachers, relatives, parents? Can you pinpoint one or two people who you believe had a massive impact on your early years that helped shape the person you've become today? Yeah, I suppose there's impact, impact both positive and negative. I think on the positive side, um, I'd, I always kind of point at my granddad. Um, my granddad uh, was, in, uh, was in property, so that's kind of where the property, maybe the property book came from. Um, you know, uh, originally from Kerry, uh, uh, you know, started building houses uh, back in the 60s. Um, and I always kind of saw him as, as uh, someone I'd like to emulate, uh, certainly from a professional pr- perspective. Um, uh, so, so that always had a big impact on, on, on what I did. Um, and then on the, I suppose on the negative side, people always have these stories about teachers, you know, teachers who didn't believe in them and all that sort of stuff. So um, I was like, from an academic perspective, I was an incredibly lazy kid. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, had all the benefits of, of a great education and, and very supportive parents and family, but I, for whatever reason, I just didn't, I never got there on, on knowing the value of a, a strong education and a, and a work ethic when I was in school. So, you know, I, I sometimes joke, I had the, um, I had the attention span of a biscuit. Um, and, and I, I just, I just couldn't focus. Uh, and it took, I suppose it took, um, you know, I was the type of guy who'd go down to the library to study for an exam and I'd, I'd stand up and walk over to the business section of the library and start reading books about nothing to do with the exam. You know, I was, I was so, uh, so easily led astray. Um, so sometimes I think of some of the teachers that would have said that I was lazy or, you know, Andrew, you'll never do anything and you have to focus. And, and I kind of use that as a bit of a, as a bit of fuel to the fire, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, talking about that, I'd like to focus on the years between 2009 and 2015. You spent time at three different companies, Parkmaster Investments, JP Morgan and Cambridge Associates. So in that six year period, uh, the question I have for you is before you got into co-founding Tree, throughout those six years, what skills did you think that you improved? Perhaps one or two that you weren't so great at, but you knew were crucial to improve before you moved into that role of starting your own business yeah it's a good good question um i think i think one thing people always uh, criticize the kind of corporate life and say oh you know you can do you can do more than just work uh, for a suit and tie nine to five uh, i i quite enjoyed my time in my you know suit and tie <laughs> um i think one thing it gives you is um incredibly good personal skills i think you know life is about people and business is about people and I think without my, um, you know, without my ability to to navigate the human element of of business, which I, I think I certainly learned, certainly at the likes of Jack Morgan and Cambridge Associates, um, then it would impact. It would absolutely impact. It would impact your ability to to be able to converse and and, and deal with problem situations later on in life. Um, you know, I, I I used to always say at Cambridge Associates. Um, I was very young and then exposed to some um, incredibly big deals uh, on the private equity and venture side, but also some some incredibly um, high caliber uh, investors and and uh, and fund managers, mm. um, which really, really helped, um, you know, frame my thoughts and, and frame the way I wanted to work going forward. Um, and and even just even down to the basics, you know, uh, you know, letter writing skills, constructing arguments, constructing points of view, memos, presentations, Excel models, 
all of those things now that are kind of second nature to me now um, uh, are are uh, would have been would have been uh, formed back in those days, um, and and I wouldn't change it for the world. Huckle tree. Rather than me give the 30, 60 second commercial, you'll do a better job. It's it is yours. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um yeah. I, yeah. I was just I was just gonna say far I was just gonna say far ahead. Far away. Far away. <laughs> so so Huckle Tree, um, you know, our 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 ambition and dream for uh, for the last seven years is to turn Huckle Tree into the center point of digital innovation in, in Europe and, and the world. Um, we do that through a couple of key initiatives. Obviously, workspace is one element. Uh, we, we think the workspace part is, um, is the kind of genesis and the seed around building a, 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 you know, one of the best networked and one of the top ecosystems in the world. Um, but we also do that through events and education and growth initiatives for our members and um, uh, and, and part of what we do is really, really focusing on what the member actually wants. Um, so uh, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, but yeah, there's lots and lots of other extra bits that, uh, that, we can, that we can talk about. Can you give me an idea of some of your locations? Yeah, so uh, we started off in uh, mid-2014 from a 37-desk building in Clarkenwell over in London, um, which we thought was the biggest thing since sliced bread. We, we were... Uh, we were smitten with it. It was our, you know, our first baby. Um, and through the years, we've grown. Our biggest space now caters for uh, just under 700 uh, people. Wow. Um, and that's located in, in West London in, uh, in a place called White City. Um, and then we also have, uh, we opened in Dublin in 2017, uh, which has space for 400 people and maybe 70, 75 companies. Um, so, yeah, I think overall now we have about 250,000 square feet across seven Eight, uh, eight, eight different uh, geographies. Five, I think, five or six in London, and then one in Manchester and one in Dublin. So, when you're looking at landing net new logos, are you have you identified like a perfect ICP company, one to ten people, or like it, anyone and anything? Yeah. So, so not the latter. Uh, we are we are quite selective. We kind of. Um, you know, often we used to refer to ourselves as a, as a workplace accelerator. Um, the accelerator being, you know, uh, uh, the, the genesis of, you know, why the member actually wants to join a Huckle Tree space. Um, we, often, we often typically don't get there in a, in, a, in a deal when all they want is a desk and a seat because actually, you know, you can get a desk and a seat in Starbucks. Um, you know, there's, there isn't, there isn't a huge benefit unless we can add value to a member business and also unless a member business can add value to the other businesses within the community and in the space. So we're really, really specific and, um, uh, exclusive is probably the, maybe the wrong word, but it's like a date. There's very seldom a second date unless both parties agree. Um, um, so, so from our perspective, it's, it's very much based on, you know, the type of business the area of business that they're in, how that business fits into the existing ecosystem. Again, so that's just timing. Um, sometimes the timing's right, sometimes it's wrong. Um, and then what we're doing now, more so, certainly more so post-COVID, which is kind of a big trend and a big theme for us, is going down more the thematic route. Um, so instead of it being, you know, 
broadly an interesting business and an interesting sector, we're actually doubling down on the sector theme. So what we what we try and do is actually have spaces and locations and essentially buildings focused almost entirely on one sector. Um, mm. And an example of that, for example, is our uh, Westminster space, which uh, is called Public Hall. And we operate that with a, a GovTech uh, incubator and accelerator called Public. And the only businesses that uh, we will accept are businesses that are revolutionizing the way government operates or trying to make an impact on the way um, public service and the civil service is, uh, is operating. And, and, and that can range from fintech, from payments. We have a, a business trying to digitize the payment of fines, parking fines, all things to do with your parking, to uh, you know, your tax, your insurance, um, uh, roadside parking. You know, some things that, that people think are trivial, but actually, if you look at some of the way government, these government uh, departments are operated, it's archaic. And they haven't been mm. changed in years and years. So any any uh, sector that's ripe for disruption, we'll focus uh, and have a look at and see if we can create a, a hub and a network um, that will support the businesses within that sector. You mentioned the word accelerator once or twice there. Before we move on to the yeah. next session, I'd like to get a, a brief overview of exactly how you plan over the next you know, 12, 18, 24 months to land net new accounts. Because... When you mention the word accelerator, I would naturally assume that partnerships have a big role in helping you land new accounts. But what are some other things that is it referrals the majority come from networking? Just give me a brief overview of how you plan to land more logos. Yeah, again, very interesting question. I think it's evolved a lot over the last uh, over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I think the businesses that we're dealing with now. Um, uh, are they want something very different from from their workspace previously it used to be you know i, I have a 10 person company or a 20 person company i need 10 or 20 uh workstations and i really buy into what huckle tree is about and i uh that's why i want to join um whereas now uh you know the businesses like us that are, are doing are doing well uh, certainly in this market are the ones that are being incredibly flexible um flexible on the commercial element so you know, the 20 person team now no longer need a 20 person office. They need a seven or an eight or a 10 person office um, because of this push into this flexible work um, kind of mantra. Um, so that's the kind of workspace element, which we kind of call the, you know, the bread and butter of it. That's not the sexy bit. That's the kind of the bit that, um, that it's a must have for companies now. Mm. The, the, the kind of sexy, sorry about the phrase, but the, the sexy bit for oh, us sorry. is, um, <laughs> the, the sexy bit for us is, um, really sitting down in those conversations and figuring out what those businesses want and need. A lot of it is, you know, um, you know, Andrew, how do we get our team to want to come in again? And that's the real post-COVID million-dollar question. Um, and through COVID, we've, you know, we've gone back to the accelerator point. It's not just about accelerating early-stage businesses because it's not just early-stage businesses that we have. I mean, Starling Bank, for example, are one of our members in Dublin, you know, they're a very big business now and they, they want something very, very different to the two person early stage team, um, uh, you know, uh, all, that also sits in this space. But they, all, they sit in very different sections of our of our kind of community. One is a big scale up, raise lots of cash, um, uh, really trying to expand their footprint across Europe and are really looking to um, help their junior staff and, and incentivize their junior staff to come in and, and develop their junior staff. And we help them with that. 
But then the earlier stage businesses are, are different. They want help with fundraising, help with pitch books, help with hiring, first hiring, CTO hiring, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we try and trade off those two. So when, the, when we talk about the acceleration, <clears throat> the acceleration piece, um, it's not always just about early stage businesses. It's about acceleration and value add as defined by our members who are typically at different stages. Mm. Um, so when we, when we talk about uh, you know, member acquisition and member retention, um, it's very much about us being as dynamic as we possibly can, listening to what the feedback and what, what members at different stages want, and then trying to factor in some of those thoughts and processes into what we give back to members and therefore how we, how we attract and retain members. Mm. Um, a lot of it, you know, as, as you point out, a lot of it is organic. Um, some of the bigger businesses, uh, you know, certainly with a lot of FDI in Ireland, a lot of the bigger businesses do come in through, you know, EI and the IDA. Um, again, it's kind of a well-trodden path now for a lot of big US businesses. They kind of come in through those, those, those networks, uh, of which we're obviously very close to. Um, but yeah, you know, Dublin specifically is a small, is a small spot. So a lot of our members do come in through referrals. Um, we, you know, we got a, a lot of members coming out of certain incubator funds or incubators that that uh, are looking to set up. Um, and yeah, we're pretty we're pretty busy on the ground from a business development perspective too. So it's obviously not all about workspace, but um, that's kind of where we anchor it. You're also a, a I'll leave links to both your LinkedIn account and the Huckle Tree website, and I'll mention that a couple more times. But uh, in wherever yeah. you're listening or watching this, but you're also an investor and an advisor to some companies. So the question I have here is when you look at businesses, um, what's a, and I'll define what a blind spot it is in a second, but what's a blind spot that you feel is crucial to eliminate if someone wants to, uh, you know, increase the value of their company? And by blind spot, I mean not paying attention to lead generation and not having a hiring process, not having an onboarding process, not having a common language in the company. Um, yeah, I guess that's roughly what a blind spot is, something that could hold back an otherwise healthy business. Yeah. Is there a common one that you get frustrated at when you look at these you know, startups that you're like, if you just fix that blind spot, you would be two, three, four X faster growth than you currently are? Yeah, it, uh, there's one that jumps out at me. Um, uh, which is which is a kind of a, a big one, and it's certainly a bigger one in the last kind of six months, I would say, um, is this obsession with fundraising. Um, don't get me wrong, fundraising is required. Cash is required for growth, especially if, if you want um, to inject some rocket fuel into a business. But, you know, what I always say to founders is stop focusing on the, on the, uh, on the win being the announcement in TechCrunch. You know, that's, that's not, that, that's, whilst it's a milestone and in often, often, you know, it needs to be celebrated, you know, a big believer in making sure that you always celebrate the milestones and not just skip ahead. Um, but that's, that's not the goal. The goal, you know, isn't or shouldn't at least be um, raise as much money as I possibly can and, and get patted on the back and be able to tweet about it. And, you know, um, because that, that that's only when the hard work starts and people mm. forget and, and and it's become it's become progressively more easy um for for good businesses i will caveat uh for good businesses to fundraise um because there is now you know buckets and buckets of cash 
floating around the system at the moment um, for various reasons, which maybe we can talk about on another two hour long podcast. But um, it's very uh, it's extremely easy for good, uh, good, well-led businesses um, to to raise money at the moment. And that's just a fact. Um, And and one thing I'm always very conscious of, uh, the pedantic me, uh, is just is, is, is the legals. One thing that most founders, unless you've founded a couple of businesses, um, where the blind, where the big blind spot is, is, is the focus on the valuation, the focus on how much money you're raising and the valuation, and that being the key, and that being the you know, um, the one kind of you know blinkered approach that they're taking to fundraising, and and forgetting that actually the other ninety nine points in a lot of these shareholders agreements or fundraising documents, that's where that's where the um, the money's made and lost, so to speak. Um, so, so if there was one, if there was, and, and there is, uh, if there was one um, big piece of advice I'd be telling founders is really, really get up to speed on, on um, the, the lingo in fundraising documents, the lingo in, in, uh, uh, in raising money from, certainly from venture capital, as opposed to maybe Angel, who are a little bit more relaxed, um, because you can f- quite easily find yourself doing really well on the valuation, raising loads of money, and then essentially being hogtied um, by investors, by professional investors for, for years and years and years to come, um, which can be a bit debilitating and also um, not the most inspiring way to start off your entrepreneurial journey. I can imagine. Um, is there a tool out there that you cannot live without? Uh, I, I, I'll... I'll you're, you're probably meaning productivity tool and work, but I'm going to bring it back to my personal life. Um, I, I don't think I'd be able to operate um, function maybe uh, without my Garmin, my, uh, my watch. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but um, I'm one of those people who I really like the data. I really like the data um, uh, and I do a lot of running um, and, uh, uh, and, and without my watch, I'd be lost. It's kind of, uh, I like retreating into the numbers sometimes in my in my Garmin app. Uh, it doesn't sound like the most interesting thing in the world for most people, I'd imagine, but um, it, it creates a bit of a break. Um, it also it also I get the same dopamine hits uh, as as I do in my Garmin app, seeing my my various statistics off some of my runs that I do maybe that some people do off of Instagram and Twitter. So um, uh, with with less of the feedback, Garmin isn't as critical. <laughs> Garmin yeah. isn't as uh, as critical as, as some of the some of the comments on Twitter and Instagram most of the time, so uh, I'm pretty content with my Garmin. So yeah, I couldn't. I don't think I could live without my Garmin. Two final questions for you, Andrew. Um, have you got your own definition of what success means to you? That's a good uh, a good question. I think um, I'll skirt maybe skirt around the answer, but uh, I think I think for most people people think of success in a very very different way um certainly the definition for me success is kind of happiness uh, again maybe sounds a bit cheesy but you know i have two I, you know lovely wife jan two kids Edie and esme um uh, success now is is essentially driven by i would say like their happiness i think once you have kids you realize that you're, you're no longer the most important thing in the room um and and i think one thing it does is having kids gives you a huge amount of perspective on things and i think success for me say in 2015 16 um 
like most like most people in their early 20s um was essentially kind of defined by you know commercial success money um uh business success etc but i think as i've as i've gotten gotten a bit older and and as 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 the kids have gotten a bit older um you realize actually success is being able to for example daily success for me is is uh is being optimized and efficient during the day so i can put the kids to bed so i can feed them so i you know feed them dinner um you know making sure that i'm i'm doing enough during the week that i that i don't anymore have to you know go crazy on the weekends and spend 14 hour days on my laptop and i'm able to bring the kids swimming on at three o'clock on a on a sunday um but i i do think i do think you still need to have the fire and the passion um to drive a business forward i think success now for us um is is about really driving value to our member businesses we sometimes say that we kind of ride on the coattails of the success stories of our of our member businesses and one of those businesses for example is a business called butternut box which um actually recently expanded into ireland they're a uh um a dog food a kind of a uh, you know a dog food uh, direct consumer dog food delivery business and they um you know uh, founded actually by another irish guy kev and dave and are doing incredibly well and they they started with us i think it was early 2017 um with 15 people um they've gone on to raise now over 50 million uh pounds in funding and have a you know 300 person plus team uh, across across you know a couple of couple of geographies and we followed their 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 journey all the way along so when i think of success i think of um you know how amazing it's been to be able to be able to help and, and add value in some way to some of these businesses that are doing incredible things across the world mm. um rather than you know obviously obviously the security of 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 uh of money and, and commercial success is is important again especially when you have kids um but but i think as you get a little bit older you can kind of push that to the side and, and really focus on the business and the product um and and with the goal being that the, the commercial that comes later Final question for you, Andrew, is if you were the decision, final decision maker maker in adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why? Oh, my God. The first thing that jumps out is, uh, um, and I don't think this is a subject that's easily taught, but um, I think uh, going back to one of my answers that maybe at the start um, is... Uh, uh, emotional intelligence and the, and the ability for people to be able to um, converse and deal with other people uh, is so important. And I, I don't know exactly how you would necessarily teach that in secondary school. Hopefully that's for somebody far smarter than me to figure out. But um, if we were able to be a little bit more focused on, um, on how people interact with each other and really, you know, we call it cop on in Ireland. Uh, it, it doesn't, that, that, that word doesn't necessarily translate, but um, as my granddad used to say, there's nothing common about common sense. And, and I think uh, for, for kids and teenagers to be able to um, have some sort of footing in, in dealing in awkward situations um, and training, maybe training is the wrong word, but some sort of training in that early on, I think it would, save a lot more hassle and and uh and create a lot more better grounded people um in their late teens and early 20s 
Great answer. Andrew Lynch, co-founder of Huckletree. We'll leave it there. Thanks again for being my guest. I'll leave links to both Huckletree website and your LinkedIn in the description field where you're listening to this. But for today, I wish you continued success. And, and for today, thanks for being my guest. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Beautiful morning. Get a sun in my morning bed.